Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. With all the stresses of life, it can be easy to lose perspective on what really matters. But Heineken believes that life is about being with friends and opening yourself to new experiences because when you live spontaneously and embrace the unexpected, it's a chance to create new stories and connections. You just have to be open to it. So enjoy a refreshingly cold, full-bodied Heineken lager today with its deep golden color, light fruity aroma, mild bitter taste, and a crisp, clean finish. Cheers! From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your friend, your reader, Michael Ian Black. I just picked something out of my mouth. Don't you? Uh, it was, I mean, you know, you ever have like that little thing, a little tickle in your mouth and you pull something out and you're like, oh, that's gross. That's a hair. Well, this wasn't a hair. This was a fiber that somehow ended up in my mouth, a red acrylic fiber from an Afghan made for me by the titular head of the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, Jill Schwartz. I think she made it for me when I was maybe five or six years old. To my knowledge, this and another Afghan, uh, just like it, are the only things my mother ever knit. I guess it's knit. And it's red, white, and blue. I feel like she gave it to me around the bicentennial, 1976. And my brothers, she made similar, I think it was more like white, blue, and red. I don't know if he still has his, but I have dragged this Afghan with me wherever I have gone for the last 40-something years. It's on my couch here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. I often have the Afghan on on me when I'm in here because the air conditioning in this part of my manse 
gets a little cool. And so sometimes when I'm supine on my couch, I put the afghan on and then uh, somehow one of the fibers transferred itself into my mouth and I just pulled it out, relieved in a sense that it wasn't something much grosser than it turned out to be. So as I discuss the care taken by Jill Schwartz to knit this afghan, I am reminded of just handiwork in general. And when we last left Jude, he was visiting the stonemasons in Christminster and he was looking uh, for some employment. And he found the foreman and he was looking around and he had an illumination, he says, about how the stoneyard, I'm quoting now, was a center of effort as worthy as that dignified by the name of scholarly study within the noblest of the colleges. In other words, he's like, yeah, this is cool. This is just as cool as like all that book learning I'm trying to do. And then he's like, nah, probably not. I should probably go to college. It was just a moment of illumination. His form of the modern vice of unrest, as quoted by Thomas Hardy. So I'll I'll keep reading. So uh, just quick recap. He's in Christminster. He has a little house or apartment. He's looking for work. And he's going to go about his studies. So he's, he's uh, at the stone yard and he's looking at the stonework. And he said, the, the book says, moreover, he perceived that at best only copying, patching and imitating went on here, which he fancied to be owing to some temporary and local cause. He did not at that time see that medievalism was as dead as a fern leaf in a lump of coal, that other developments were shaping in the world around him, in which Gothic architecture and its associations had no place. The deadly animosity of contemporary logic and vision towards so much of what he held in reverence was not yet revealed to him. And this is one of the things that Hardy is talking about from the very beginning. When he talks about the church in Mary Green that had been torn down and a new kind of shoddy one erected in its place, he's talking about, as Tracy Chapman so beautifully sang, a revolution, talking about a revolution. The revolution that he's talking about is the, well, the Industrial Revolution, guys. The Industrial Revolution, that churning of gears which has obliterated everything that comes before and will obliterate itself as it destroys the planet, which is what's happening right now. But he doesn't see this. Look, guys, please don't scream at me. Please don't scream at me. Michael, you hate progress. That's not it. Please don't scream at me that I hate progress. That's not it at all, guys. I'm just recognizing a truth that the Industrial Revolution, of which Jude is kind of caught up in the middle of, in which he is, I mean, it's it's been going on now in England for 100, no, 60, 70 years, something like that. But it's really just kind of catching fire here. And there's no place for the handiwork of red, white, and blue Afghans or the carving of stone all that he holds in reverence. And the medievalism that Hardy is talking about may also be equally applied to his own studies, that of ancient Greek and Latin. I have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) But, but, but that has been true this entire podcast and you're still with me. 
back to the book. Having failed to obtain work here as yet, he went away and thought again of his cousin. Right, he's got this cousin somewhere in Christminster who he seems to inexplicably have developed a little crush on. His aunt had a little photo of her, but he doesn't know her. He's never met her. Uh, His cousin, whose presence somewhere at hand, he seemed to feel in wavelets of interest, if not of emotion, how he wished he had that pretty portrait of her. At last, he wrote to his aunt to send it. She did so, with a request, however, that he was not to bring disturbance into the family by going to see the girl or her relations. Well, what the hell does she think he's going to do? Of course he's going to go see the girl. Of course he's going to go see her relations. Now, you and I were like, ew, he's going to fuck his cousin. But listen, guys, it wasn't such a big deal then, right? Who cared? They weren't all up in arms about incest. They liked it. Jude, a ridiculously affectionate fellow, promised nothing good. Put the photograph on the mantel. And I'm not saying cousins having sex is incest, although it kind of is. It's not that bad, but it's not great. He put the photograph on the mantelpiece, kissed it, (laughs) and then it says he did not know why, (laughs) and felt more at home. He's never met her. She seemed to look down and preside over his tea. It was cheering, the one thing uniting him to the emotions of the living city. There remained the schoolmaster, probably now a reverend parson, but he could not possibly hunt up such a respectable man just yet. So raw and unpolished was his condition, so precarious were his fortunes. Thus he still remained in loneliness. Well, he's not that lonely. He's got a he's got a photo to kiss. I mean, look, let's be real here for a second. You and you you and I have looked at some photos ourselves, haven't we? Right? Some moving photos on the internet and been moved in our own ways. Talking about masturbation. This seems like a good time to pause and then uh post-pausal, post-menopausal, because I'm a man, so I'm doing menopause. We'll be back on Obscure. Hi, we're back. We're in part second, chapter two. Although people moved round him, he virtually saw none. Not as yet having mingled with the active life of the place, it was largely non-existent to him. But the saints and prophets in the window tracery, the paintings in the galleries, the statues, the busts, the gurgoyles. Ooh, I like that. Hardy spells it gurgoyles, G-U-R-G-O-Y-L-E-S, instead of uh, gargoyles, as we spell it. Gurgoyles. Gurgle. Gurgles. The corbel heads, these seem to breathe his atmosphere like all newcomers to a spot on which the past is deeply graven. He heard that past announcing itself with an emphasis altogether unsuspected by and even incredible to the habitual residents. Yes, Tom, Tom, look, Tom Hardy has nailed something here. That feeling you get when you go to visit someplace, right? That feeling of, oh, this place is incredibly exo- exotic and new and it, ha- and it means so much to me. 
and like everything looks amazing and every new site is a new wonder and oh my god look at that they're selling coconut ices on the corner and people are just walking by how are they walking by when they're selling coconut ices on the corner i'm going to come to this corner every day while i'm in town and i'm going to get a coconut icy and when you get it it's the best damn coconut icy you've ever had because you're in a new environment and that's what uh, jude is going through at the moment he is exploring this new place and every new site is a new wonder to him and of course it is he's been dreaming about this for years he's been dreaming about these gurgles and he's been dreaming about these corbel heads and he's been dreaming about the scholarship that is just in the air here and he doesn't know anybody but he's excited by the atmosphere. He's excited by everything that's around him. But at the same time, he's lonely, which we all are when we visit new cities by ourselves. Places of such multitudes can feel so lonely. For many days, he haunted the cloisters and quadrangles of the colleges I got myself out of breath talking about the coconut ices, guys. I was so excited by the coconut ices. For many days, he haunted the cloisters and quadrangles of the colleges at odd minutes in passing them, surprised by impish echoes of his own footsteps, smart as the blows of a mallet. The Christminster sentiment, and he's got uh, Tom Hardy's got sentiment in quotes here, as it had been called, ate further and further into him till he probably knew more about those buildings materially, artistically, and historically than any one of their inmates. It was not till now, when he found himself actually on the spot of his enthusiasm, that Jude perceived how far away from the object of that enthusiasm he really was. Only a wall divided him from those happy young contemporaries of his with whom he shared a common mental life, men who had nothing to do from morning till night but to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. Only a wall. But what a wall. (sighs) I mean, that's the whole thing, right? We got a guy... Uh, down in D.C. or up in D.C. or across in D.C., depending on where you're listening to this, who is also interested in a wall. He wants to build a wall separating nations. And walls can be highly effective and they can be highly defective. A lot of times, and now I'm going to get, now I'm going to blow your minds, guys. A lot of times the wall is just our imagination. Holy shit. Yes, I went there. Oh, shit. Smoking that doobie, yo. I'm not. I just have these thoughts. I just have these thoughts. Okay, I mean, like, what if a color, what if what you see is green isn't what um, I see is green? What if God is, isn't like a, isn't a man with a beard? Like, I don't even think he is. I don't think he's a, a guy with a beard on a throne. Like, what if he's just a leaf on a tree or the sound of a burbling brook? I'm just blowing my own mind right now. <clears throat> what a wall back to the book. Every day, every hour, as he went in search of labor, he saw them going and coming also, rubbed shoulders with them, heard their voices, marked their movements. The conversation of some of the more thoughtful among them seemed oftentimes, owing to his long and persistent preparation for this place, to be peculiarly, peculiarly akin to his own thoughts. 
yet he was as far from them as if he had been at the Antipodes. Again, it's all in his head. It's like goodwill hunting. He's goodwill hunting right now, right? He is the janitor. He's like an unemployed janitor, though, at MIT, who's just as smart as those Harvard kids uh, or the MIT kids. But there's a mental barrier there, right? He doesn't think that he belongs among them. He doesn't recognize how wicked smart he is. And so he's just scrubbing floors, looking at these smarty pants kids and thinking he doesn't belong among them, even though he secretly suspects that he's just as good, but he can't quite get over the hurdle to prove it to himself because he's just a kid from the boonies, right? He's just a kid from, he's just a Southie hanging out with his Southie friends, even though he has no friends. The uh, analogy isn't as good as I thought when I first thought of it. back to the book. Yet he was as far from them as if he had been at the Antipodes. Of course he was. He was a young workman in a white blouse and with stone dust in the creases of his clothes. And in passing him, they did not even see him or hear him, rather saw through him as through a pane of glass at their familias beyond. Now, now it is just goodwill hunting. They saw through him as through a pane of glass at their familiars beyond. Do you remember the pane of glass? Will holds up the sign. You like apples? How do you like them apples? I got a number. How do you like them apples? Whatever they were to him, he to them was not on the spot at all. He doesn't even exist to them. And yet he had fancied he would be close to their lives by coming there. But the future lay ahead after all, just like Will Hunting's future lays ahead. And if He could only be so fortunate as to get into good employment. He would put up with the inevitable. So he thanked God for his health and strength and took courage. For the present, he was outside the gates of everything, colleges included. Perhaps someday he would be inside those palaces of light and letting, leading or letting. Letting, I guess, like the windows. He might someday look down on the world through their pains. At length, he did receive a message from the stonemason's yard that a job was waiting for him. It was his first encouragement, and he closed with the offer promptly. It's exciting. He's got, a, he's got himself a job over there at MIT, and he's going to go be a janitor, and he's going to show those college smarty pants uh, boys what's what. He was young and strong, or he never could have executed with such zest the undertakings to which he now applied himself, since they involved reading most of the night after working all the day. First, he bought a shaded lamp for four and sixpence and obtained a good light. Then he got pens, paper, and such other necessary books as he had been unable to obtain elsewhere." Then, to the consternation of his landlady, he shifted all the furniture of his room, a single one for living and sleeping, rigged up a curtain on a rope across the middle to make a double chamber out of one, hung up a thick blind that nobody should know how he was curtailing the hours of sleep, laid out his books, and sat down. He is getting serious here. He is not wasting any more time. 
having been deeply encumbered by marrying, getting a cottage, and buying the furniture which had disappeared in the wake of his wife, he had never been able to save any money since the time of those disastrous ventures. Until his wages began to come in, he was obliged to live in the narrowest way. After buying a book or two, he could not even afford himself a fire. And when the nights reeked with the raw and cold air from the meadows, he sat over his lamp in a great coat and woolen gloves. From his window, he could perceive the spire of the cathedral and the OG, what's OG, O-G-E-E, -E, the OG dome. Oh, OG, it's um, original gangsta, the original gangsta dome. No, it, ha it means having a double continuous S-shaped curve. Okay. So it's a, a, I don't know, fancy dome under which resounded the great bell of the city. The tall tower, tall belfry windows, and tall pinnacles of the college by the bridge he could also get a glimpse of by going to the staircase. These objects he used as stimulants when his faith in the future was dim. So this is a real pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of story. I mean, this is Will Hunting going to town on his book learning, staying up all night, hitting the stacks, janitorizing by day, reading by night, no sleep. He's got no money. But when he, when his future looks dim, he looks out at the dome and the colleges and he gets all excited like enthusiasts. I'm back to the book, like enthusiasts in general, he made no inquiries into details of procedure, right? That's like me with, um, when I want to learn something, I just dive right in and then I study it and study it and study it. And then months later, I'm still terrible at it. <laughs> Let's take a quick break. You're listening to Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, do you like queer comedy parties? I know you do. 
You like Dave Holmes and Matt McConkey? Sure you do. It's Homophilia on Earwolf. Homophilia, queer comedy party where hosts Dave Holmes and Matt McConkey. They have on LGBTQ celebrities and they talk and they talk, you know, what they're doing, who they're loving, what, what's up, you know, the whole thing. Just like you, just like you would sit down and interview anybody else. But these people are specifically LGBTQ. The conversations, let me describe them for you. Eye-opening, hilarious, in-depth, pop culture stuff, personal experiences with dating, sex, love. I mean, this is a perfect companion podcast for Jude the Obscure, because Jude the Obscure, as I'm sure you know, is huge in the gay community. I don't think that's true. Uh, here's some guests that, that you'll, you'll get to hear. Trixie Mattel from Drag Race, John Lovett from Pod Save America, Margaret Cho, more. You don't have to be LGBTQ to get a lot out of this. For example, I love Margaret Cho. We've been friends for years. She gave me a pill once. It was a, it was a Xanax. Episodes are released every Friday, just in time for the weekend. Subscribe to Homophilia Now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To Obscure, I'm Michael Ian Black. Back to the book. Picking up general notions from casual acquaintance, he never dwelt upon them. For the present, he said to himself, the one thing necessary was to get ready by accumulating money and knowledge and await whatever chances were afforded to such a one of becoming a son of the university. Uh, And then there's a little quote here. For wisdom is a defense and money is a defense, but the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. I'm assuming that's from the Bible. I wouldn't know. The one Bible we have in our home is located in a different wing of the manse and is Martha's old family Bible. It's not that old. It's like her mom bought it, but from her family. And like Jude the Obscure, up until now, it has never been cracked open. His desire absorbed him and left no part of him to weigh its practicability. At this time, and you'll notice that I'm reading a lot today, and I'm reading a lot today because last time I read so little, I feel like I need to make up some lost ground. Maybe that's good for you. Maybe that's bad for you. I don't know. But it's like when Tracy Chapman releases an album. And last time we talked about Dave Matthews. This time we're talking about Tracy Chapman because we're talking about a revolution. It's like, you just, you just go with it. And that's what I'm doing. I'm just going with it. And I'm, I'm hoping that all the songs are hits. At this time, he received a nervously anxious letter from his poor old aunt on the subject, which, you know, what's funny. I'm interrupting myself now as I often do, because I'm feeling, as Jude is feeling, his own lack of confidence and his own lack of faith in the future. I'm, I'm hearing a critic in my head saying, Michael, this is a terrible episode that you're recording so far. You haven't been funny. You haven't been insightful. And maybe you should just scrap it and start again. I've never done that before. And that would be cheating. And I feel like you don't want me to cheat. I feel like I don't want me to cheat. Like, I feel like for good or ill, we're in this together. And 
Here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, there's nobody looking over my shoulder. There's no librarian other than, again, the titular head looking down and saying, Michael, don't cheat. And I've got the Afghan here to remind me of the librarian emeritus. And so I feel as though I should just continue and plow through my own doubts and self-recriminations. Here's the thing. And this, again, is the whole point of the podcast. I have a critic in my head, as I'm sure you have a critic in your head. And my critic says, Michael, you're terrible and you're not interesting or funny. I don't know what your critic says, but if it also says about me that I'm terrible and not funny, then I would be like, yeah, that makes sense. But whatever your critic is saying to you, I'm telling you right now, ignore it. Not true. You're great. And I'm going to plow ahead and I'm just going to, I'm going to ignore the critic in my head. But I felt like it was important to acknowledge. At this time, he received a nervously anxious letter from his poor old aunt. (laughs) We hate his aunt. On the subject which had previously distressed her, a fear that Jude would not be strong-minded enough to keep away from his cousin Sue Bridehead. Oh my God, her name is Bridehead. That's a Dickensian name if I ever heard one. Sue Bridehead and her relations. Sue's father, his aunt believed, had gone back to London, but the girl remained at Christminster. To make her still more objectionable, she was an artist or designer of some sort in what was called an ecclesiastical warehouse. <laughs> oh. That's just a perfect uh, euphemism, isn't it? An ecclesiastical warehouse, which was a perfect seedbed of idolatry. And she was no doubt abandoned to mummeries on that account, if not quite a papist. Miss Drusilla Fowley was of her date evangelical. So up until this point, I had thought, and I think I had led you to believe that the aunt doesn't want Jude to call on Sue because there was some sort of shame associated with Jude and he didn't want Sue to be sullied with it. And now we're learning that the shame is on Sue. She's almost a papist, you guys, living as she does in that ecclesiastical warehouse of hers. You might as well have just called it a whorehouse, Tom, just an ecclesiastical whorehouse. And Drusilla Fowley, the aunt, of course, is an evangelical, and she would not spare the time of day for a papist. As uh, I'm back to the book, as Jude was rather on an intellectual track than a theological, this news of Sue's probable opinions did not much influence him one way or the other. But the clue to her whereabouts was decidedly interesting. With an altogether singular pleasure, he walked at his earliest spare minutes past the shops answering to his great aunt's description and beheld in one of them a young girl sitting behind a desk who was suspiciously like the original of the portrait. He ventured to enter on a trivial errand and having made his purchase, lingered on the scene. The shop seemed to be kept entirely by women. It contained Anglican books, stationery, texts, and fancy goods. Little plaster angels on brackets, gothic framed pictures of saints, ebony crosses that were almost crucifixes, 
prayer books that were almost missiles. He felt very shy of looking at the girl in the desk. She was so pretty that he could not believe it possible that she should belong to him. Then she spoke to one of the two older women behind the counter, and he recognized in the accents certain qualities of his own voice, softened and sweetened, but his own. Well, I'm sorry that's creepy. He sees this girl. He knows she's his cousin. He thinks she's very pretty. He can't, he's never seen anybody so pretty as his cousin. And then when she opens her mouth, she sounds like him. Gross. Like, if my wife started talking like me, I mean, I can't imagine a bigger turnoff. But then again, I hate myself. What was she doing? He stole a glance round. Before her lay a piece of zinc cut to the shape of a scroll three or four feet long and coated with a dead surface paint on one side. Hereon she was designing or illuminating in characters of church text the single word, Alleluia. Do you remember... uh, when we met Arabella in the portrait of Samson and Delilah at the pub and how that foretold all the misery that was going to be brought down on his head, how he himself would be shorn of his own manhood as Samson was by this wench. Well, now we have the very opposite. Now we have Sue Bridehead sitting at a desk illuminating manuscripts with the single word Alleluia. She is clearly a learned personage. She is clearly of an artistic bent, as his aunt had said. She's beautiful. And by God, she's got his voice. And what is more attractive than looking in a mirror? What's going to happen? I'm feeling like I should stop right here with that cliffhanger. Alleluia. And it foretells great happiness for Jude, doesn't it? But... I feel like I know that whatever this is, <laughs> whatever is going to happen with Sue Bridehead, and I suspect there's going to be love. There may even be a second marriage. Maybe there'll be a baby. I don't know. But whatever it is, is going to end with the opposite of whatever Alleluia is. Damnation, I suppose. The question is, why? Why? I'm happy to end with hopefulness. I'm happy to end with walls coming down. And I am just delighted that we stuck it out here together on another heart-pounding episode of Obscure. Until next time, I wish all of you adieu.
Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And you can talk to us at Obscure with Michael Ian Black at gmail.com. If you like what you've heard, please write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, why did you make it all the way to the credits? Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedgren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black. This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que no está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hola, Nesea. Spanish Aki Presents.